It's Friday, December 2nd, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and all of America. And I'm also going to assume all of Holland, as they don't like to call it, will be coming together with entirely different outcomes in mind as the U.S. plays the Netherlands, one of the best teams in the world, in the World Cup. Now, next week, after the match on the show, I will be speaking with Pulitzer Prize winner George Dorman, who wrote a great book about U.S. soccer called Switching Fields Inside the Fight to Remake Men's Soccer in the United States. And so thanks for joining me then, and thanks for joining me now, George. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So what I want to ask you now is our one question, one question only segment in advance of this match, drawing on what you know about not just the 22 people on the field, but the entire system that systems that built up those people, that propped up those people, that found those people. What does your knowledge of the systems tell you about what we might see on the pitch come Saturday? You know, I think the word I would focus on is sort of synchronicity, right? Like in countries like the Netherlands, there is a synchronicity in how they develop players from a very young age up. And while they have like several pro teams that might be developing them, there still exists a synchronicity about how they're going to teach the game, how they're going to play the game, what they're going to prioritize. So you will see a synchronicity between the Dutch players that is honestly superior to what you will see between the U.S. players, and that's not necessarily talent, like in, not just talent maybe. Um, it's because they have years on the U.S. players playing a certain way, playing with each other or players like each other, right? So I think, you know, we want the U.S. to play the beautiful game. Netherlands plays the beautiful game. We, we sometimes, often, depending on the opponent, play the beautiful game, right? But I think... What we might see is a little more disjointed, uh, defensive, hold-on style of play for the U.S., whereas the Netherlands, no matter who they play, are going to attempt to play a more synchronized, beautiful game. Well, the United States is a large, heterogeneous country, and that has many merits, but when it comes to 11 people playing together, that is something to overcome. And it's all in your book, Switching Fields Inside the Fight to Remake Men's Soccer in the United States. Thanks, George. I appreciate it. On the show today, it's an Antoine Tig, and I shall give a lobster. Actually, I won't do it. I'm farming that out to a loved one. But first, Emily Oster is a Brown University professor of economics who works on public health policy. During the pandemic, the most pressing health policy emergency of our time, she drew upon her expertise and platform to make recommendations about school openings and risk conceptualization. I found her writing indispensable. Some did not. But I know now that the evidence is in and we know that school closures had enormous costs weighed against minimal benefit, she should be taking a victory lap. Instead, she is extending grace with an essay in The Atlantic, Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. Let's be humble, she says, about how much we knew then, how much we should have known. And let's not read into the motives of our enemies. Let's not even think of them as enemies. Let's not engage in ongoing vitriol because there are still important things to work out. And this response from even the most impassioned corners was, yes, Emily, 
your right. We will regard you as a bright and shining star. No, it was not. She was told she was a monster by such pro-shutdown enthusiasts as the horse whisperer. I don't know either. Someone with about half a million Twitter followers. When Oster tweeted her amnesty idea, he, horse, responded with, You should spend the rest of your career being reminded of your sociopathic indifference to others' well-being. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there was anti-vax conspiracy theorist Naomi Wolf, who writes of the idea of putting aside past differences in the names of future gains, quote, amnesty for crimes of this severity and scale is not an option. There was no group hug after the liberation of Auschwitz which is a really easy rhetorical position to walk back from. In general, I'm not the kind of person who says, well, one side hates me and the other side hates me. I must be doing something right. But if you write about amnesty and only one side agrees, you wouldn't be writing effectively. But also if you wrote about amnesty and both sides said, hell yeah, that is so obviously true, you wouldn't have had to actually engage in advocacy for amnesty. So in this position, very vitriolic enemies are an indication that Emily Oster might be onto something. For further indications, well, Emily Oster joins me next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Emily Oster is an economist at Brown University. She is the author of The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to Better Decision-Making in the Early School Years, and Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong, and What You Really Need to Know. She has also been writing extensively about public health and the coronavirus. As such, she marked herself early as a, let's call it a thought leader, on the issue of kids and schools. I have to say, all the evidence shows she got it right. There was massive learning loss, and she warned us about the risks and costs of closing down schools. As such, as someone who made her opinions known, she got hate mail, probably some death threats, literally called a genocider. But these days, everyone gets called a genocider, except maybe Min Ong Hyang. You know him? He's the leader of Burma. He's literally committing genocide. She recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic that I wanted to talk to her about. Let's declare a pandemic amnesty. Let's focus on the future and fix the problems we still need to solve. Yes, I say. Welcome back to The Gist, Emily. Thank you for having me, Michael. Great to see you. Was this a creed de corps? It needed to be said? It was building up? Or is there some other motivation or emotion at work? So, you know, as you know, I, I sort of specialize in statistics and I'm also a parent and I spent a lot of the pandemic writing about these issues. Um, and when I look at where we are now, what seems so clear to me is that we need to figure out how to move forward. And I see many of the questions that we had during the pandemic being rehashed. 
And I, I felt, and this is, you know, I try to express this in the, in the, uh, in the piece that rehashing those discussions, rehashing what we got right and we got wrong is not going to help us move forward. And I worry that we are losing time to move forward, particularly on issues with kids around school, even around things like routine vaccinations, that there's just a lot of problems to fix that we need to figure out how to work together to fix. Well, who's the we? I mean, someone needs to rehash. Someone needs to do a correct assessment of what we got right and wrong, right? There is value in reassessing what we got right and wrong in the sense that it will help us not make the same mistakes again. However, I would much rather that we focus our limited data energies on questions that are going to help us fix the problems that we have. So I'll give you a very concrete example. When we talk about schools and you know how and look what happened there and how to move forward. I feel like we're still having debates about you know how important was remote learning. That is a question that you know I am interested in. I have done research on. I have you know I have opinions like many other people do about just how much of the declines in test scores were about remote remote learning. But the reality is that everyone's test scores have gone down and we need to figure out how to bring them up. And that is also a question that is amenable to data and analysis, which we could be answering. So if we look at, you know, test scores and how much they've recovered, they recovered between 2021 and 2022, there's huge variation in that recovery across states. That's something we need to understand. I would much rather understand why Mississippi fully recovered their losses in reading scores and Georgia made no progress and Massachusetts moved backwards. I want to know the answer to that question much more than I want to understand is remote learning responsible for 20% or 30% or 19% of the overall losses. Mm-hmm. Am I being too pie in the sky when I say, well, why not both and instead of either or? As a researcher, I'm always going to say let's like let's learn let's learn more uh, more pieces of data. I do think that in the public debate on this, in the public discussion, there is often not infinite space to have all these different conversations at the same time. And so, when we focus a lot on one thing, we do tend to lose focus on another thing, which is different from the question of from a research standpoint, could we research both of these? Absolutely. But resources are are finite, and every moment that's spent on one thing is not spent on on another thing. So, I, I do see some tension, even though I, you know, in some sense, sort of, I, I do want to answer all the questions, those questions, and all the other questions in the world at the same time. Yeah, I will admit, why not both and? It was a trick question. The answer is always both and. But to think of it practically, the people who have these discussions, I'm not talking mostly about the academics. I'm talking about, let's say, something like public intellectuals or the people who make decisions about what goes on the front page of a newspaper or the people who get the most traction on a website that might close down tomorrow. Anyway, the people who are spending these times with uh, times doing this have a finite amount of time. And like all human beings, I think that emotion rules them. And they're so dug in. This is my perspective, but I think you're seeing it. And it's what drove the piece. They're so dug in on past stances. It is becoming something close to impossible to have very necessary conversations about the future. And don't think that coronavirus is so over that we don't need to have those conversations. Don't think that the fallout, like what you're talking about with schooling, is so over that we have the luxury of simply rehashing what we got right or wrong about, say, masks and when we got it right or wrong. I mean, that's, that's I think, what you're saying. 
Yeah, I think that that is that that is what I'm saying. That we you know, we really n- need to spend that energy on the questions that we have now, um, and you know, and we need to be realistic about the fact that some questions that we had before are still around, and we still need to be to be thinking about them. But many of these debates from you know from a year ago, from even from six months ago, aren't really relevant in this moment. Is it the case that the debates are settled, settled among the cognoscenti or the people who are really, really informed? Or is it more the case that the debates will never be settled, so why bother? I think it's both and, Mike. <laughs> um, you know, I, <laughs> trick answer, I, Emily. Trick answer. Um, you know, I think it is, it is the case that relative to where we were, you know, in the summer of 2020, or even the summer of 2021, many of the questions we have, people are much closer on. So, you know, in the summer of 2020, when we asked, you know, how risky is, is our school is going to be, there were a lot of people who had wide varieties of views. I think those views have coalesced much more around sort of schools, where schools are in the risk space. But there's still variation in in within a smaller range in what people in what people think. And when you get academics or intellectuals of any type together, they are never going to all agree on everything. So I think what's happened over time is on on many of these topics, we have gotten clearer about what's the range of possible disagreements, but we have not gotten to everyone agrees on exactly the same thing, nor do I expect that to ever be possible. So I never think it's going to be possible for a group of more than, say, one to possibly three people in in a kind of academic elect, intellectual environment to agree on exactly some numerical conclusion about something. But I do think our uncertainty has dialed way, way down, um, you know, over the past two years, as we've learned a variety of things. Well, as you call for an amnesty, one version of an amnesty, a complex version of an amnesty is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So you're calling for the reconciliation. Can we just go through some of the truth um, masks, you hear a wide range of masks didn't work, and then there are still people wearing masks outside today. What is, I don't know if you want to describe it as the consensus or the proof, but what do we know for sure about the uh, efficacy of masking? One thing that's very clear about masks is that from a sort of almost an engineering standpoint, it is true that if you wear a a filtration mask, it limits the amount of particles, viral particles that will get to to you. So I think that's not something that we learned during COVID. Um, That is something that we know about masking. That is something that people can, a well-fitting N95 mask is protective, and that's why people wear them in hospitals. So I would say if sort of if that's one side of, of certainty, uh, of more certainty, then if we sort of go to, to go to the other side and we ask a question about mask mandates, that's where I think the data becomes much more challenging to draw mm-hmm. strong conclusions for. Certainly, it's not there's there's not much that we have seen that would suggest that mask mandates have enormous effects, but it's difficult to under, unpack why that is. So most of the mask mandates we tried used a variety of different kinds of masks. They didn't have very strong enforcement. We don't know how much people did them or not. So that's where I think you can get these disagreements uh, across people, which is just, we don't have perfect data. We shouldn't ever expect perfect data there, but that leaves a lot of space for people to fill in with their priors. Right. Okay. 
I understand that. So where would, uh, let's apply the amnesty idea to uh, a fulcrum, a uh, point in the mask debate where they may be still having it. There aren't wide municipal mandates, but I went to a math museum, not mask, math museum, and everyone inside had to wear a mask. I kind of rolled my eyes, but as a uh, decent person in the world, I complied. Let's say I'm on the board of that math museum. How would we have, we couldn't really have an amnesty, could we? We'd have to decide the policy yay or nay and have to wade in and make a, an actual choice. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I would separate that from the point I was making about amnesty. So when I talk about amnesty in the, in the piece, the, the goal there, the, the argument there is that there were many things earlier in the pandemic where people had a lot of uncertainty and made different choices that seemed at the time to be the best choices. So and like I talk about the examples of closing, you know, hiking trails you know, yes. or closing beaches. Now that is something which ex post that was not right. That was not the right choice. And people will say, well, I knew at the time it wasn't the right choice, but, but we didn't know perfectly at, at the time that it wasn't the right choice. And even in, for individuals in particular, it was really hard to make those choices. So even if you think a policymaker should have made that choice, the fact that your friend didn't agree to meet you at a hiking trail because they think that, you know, you would have given them COVID. I think a lot of people are still hanging on to those uh, sort of rehashing those those debates. And that's where I think the amnesty comes in most strongly is in the idea that, you know, you and I may have made very different choices at, at different times. We were all working under a lot of uncertainty there is an opportunity to move past that now. And I think that's both in personal and in, I think it's quite different from the question of like, what should the mask policy be at the math museum now, which, you know, feels to me like a choice for the math museum. Yes. Okay. So in general, I agree. I look back on the decisions that were made that the evidence says weren't the best decisions, but we have to be very forgiving and we have to remember what we knew at the time. And we have to do that with both sides, two different kinds of decisions. So um, even, you know, maybe this was a decision that cost a lot of lives, but Andrew Cuomo moving people into nursing homes, there's a way to apply forgiveness to that decision at the time, or looking at what other governors in Southern states did. Ron DeSantis getting a lot of credit by opening up earlier than anyone else did. All right, we could be forgiving. It does seem, however, like if there is still ambiguity as to what the right choice is, it's not ex- what we're engaging in is not exactly forgiveness. It's more like we're engaging in, engaging in some sort of uh, self-preservation and surrendering to ambiguity. Sorry. Yeah. I think that I think that's fair. Um, I mean, I think in order to move forward, we may need some of that. And mm-hmm. and that's that's for me the focus we should have now is, you know, what do we need to do emotionally or otherwise to get to a place where we can move forward on some of these decisions? And recognize that actually for many of these questions, the uncertainty and ambiguity is never going to be answered. You know, we are never going to know the but for world. We are never going to know, you know, what would have happened if Ron DeSantis had opened later or if we had, you know, had a different piece of evidence in in one moment or or another moment or if your governor had pushed harder for, for schools or less hard for schools. We're just never going to know that thing. We're going to have to live with that uncertainty. But what we can do is we can say, okay, that uncertainty is, you know, it is, it is where it is. We're never going to get the answer to that. 
but we can, you know, we can get answers to questions that we have now. What about what about political choices? You know, I mentioned DeSantis. One of his selling points is, hey, look how he navigated the pandemic. It will probably be one of the black marks on his record for a certain kind of uh, voter. We do and are asked to evaluate the policy choices of politicians. How does an amnesty, how should an amnesty model apply to that? Taking away everything else of uh, uh, that might be part of his agenda. Just this decision. So what's interesting about that is he gets a lot of credit for being the first state to reopen from some people, and he gets a lot of not credit uh, for being the first state to reopen from other people. So I think mm-hmm. we're we're still effectively having that uh, having that debate. But here's a thing we can think about: in Florida, the student test scores drop the same amount as in California. Now, one way to take that, and I think a way that a lot of people have taken that on both sides is to say things like, well, that proves that, you know, Ron DeSantis did a bad job, or that proves that Gavin Newsom did a good job, or that proves that school reopening doesn't matter. I don't think that fact proves any of those particular things. But what it does prove is that kids are really far behind on test scores relative to where they they would have been. And so a great thing for Ron DeSantis to do would be to try to improve their their test scores. So, I mean, this is like, I think, a really clear example where we're spending an awful lot of time talking about whether he got it right or got it wrong when there is an opportunity to get something else right going forward, which no one is discussing. Can you give me an example of where you've extended forgiveness on an issue that you really know you're right about and were right about? I'm talking about something having to do with COVID, not, you know, uh, like, school lunches. Not like the time that my, you know, my husband, you know, cooking, like ruined our pot yeah. with the lamb, uh, yeah. even though he- Once it yeah. comes, once it comes like, with the time my husband cooked, I think we, right, exactly. I think we, we know, know it's all like, of listen, the example. It ended up outside in the snow to prevent a house fire. So that was, that was a low. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I- I did a lot of work on schools and, you know, in the fall of 2020, I wrote a piece called schools aren't super spreaders. And, uh, I got a lot of pushback. Um, and I think that that piece proved to be one of the earlier, maybe not the earliest, but I think it proved to be an early push towards getting kids back in school. I think that I was right, uh, that kids needed to be back in school and that the dangers of school were, uh, were less than the, um, were, were less than the benefits by a pretty wide margin. There are still people who, uh, you know, there are people who at the time were very negative about that. There are people who are still fairly negative about that. Um, but I would like to be able to work even with some of those people, some of the people who pushed back at that time, I would like to be able to work with them on moving forward on these on these issues. So there are people who push back really hard on that claim in the fall of 2020 who now I see opportunities for partnership to think about, you know, how can we move kids forward? Um, and that requires not continuing to be angry or to extend, and Olive Branch isn't quite how we would put it, but to sort of extend uh, an understanding that at the time we didn't know. And even if I thought that I that I knew, uh, and I thought I had good data behind me. There was a range of uncertainty in what I was saying and a range of uncertainty in what they were saying. Right, right. That's really important. There's always, you got it right, you got it wrong. I mean, most things, most assessments are based on, right is being somewhere within a range of outcomes and wrong is the same thing. So if you look at uh, life's choices and the decisions we have to make, mostly A, not as motivated by some personal failing. That's a big thing, questioning motivation. That almost is always a 
bad road to go down, and B, as part of a distribution of um, conclusions to land on as opposed to a binary, I think we'd probably be better off. I agree. I mean, you see this even in something like polling, right? We tend to give people credit in a presidential poll. That's exactly if they, what I was thinking if they of when got I said it that, right, yes. right. If you know, if right, you're yeah. if you're the guy who predicted, it was like one guy who predicted Donald Trump in in you know 2016. Robert um, Robert Cahali of the right. Trafalgar. You know, poll, and I'm yes. not sure. Like he may not have gotten it right for the for the right reasons. You know, he had I'm pretty sure he didn't. I had him on the show, and he just seems <laughs> to like Republicans. Yeah, exactly. But you know, you we we tend to give a lot of credit in that in in just for being right um and i think that there's there's just huge value to recognizing that all of these come with a a lot of uncertainty and you know i may happen to get it right today but you may happen to get it right tomorrow because we land on either side of some you know zone of uncertainty all right lastly i want to try to do this we could workshop this in real time Let's try to invent the Oster codicil to George Santa Anna. He said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. What's the addendum? What's the, the Oster addendum? I would say those who focus only on the past cannot move forward. There you go. Emily Oster is an economist at Brown University. She's the author of The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. And her most recent piece for The Atlantic is Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. It's a spiel, and it's an Antoine Tig when we get to all of the listeners' feedback. Some of the listeners. Some, we get a little, a listener or two. I'll, I'll answer one guy's question. Because Antoine Tig Big, yeah, 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 it's not small. No, no, no. So first up, I was listing countries where they have a high rate of voting. My point being that normally we celebrate people going out to the polls, but I was noting that it's often actually a sign of desperation when the choices are between bad and much, much, much worse. It's just as much an incentive to vote as when the choices are between good and great, right? Probably more of an incentive to vote. And I noted that the countries atop the list of voting participation are countries like Uruguay, great country. I have no problem with Uruguay, but you know, I have no problem with any of these countries, but I listed some countries like Sweden and the Philippines and Turkey, Peru's up there, Argentina's up there. A lot of them are, you know, failing states, not doing so well, countries to really watch out for. If you live in Turkey, you really have to worry if your vote not only doesn't count, but if the other guy negates your vote and votes for an an Ankara Erdogan acolyte, it might not be good for you. So Alvaro Villanueva did write in and say, well, one of the reasons those countries are at the top of the list of voting is that they're mandatory voting countries, compulsory voting countries. And I said, well, I know that some of them are, the South American countries are, but you know, Turkey isn't compulsory and the Philippines isn't compulsory. And he responded by saying, well, Philippines maybe used to have it, but Turkey does have laws on the book that requires you to vote. It's just not enforced, which I would say is a good sign of a country where you really need to get out there and vote if they don't even enforce their own laws requiring you to vote. Trevor McDonald wrote in saying that on the November 3rd show, I mentioned that assistant producer Corey Wara, surely spelled incorrectly, it was, but that's okay. I'm reading. It doesn't matter how you spell it as long as it's phonetically, but no, it's not like that. Corey Wara maybe got my reference to Richard Kimball as being a character in The Fugitive, if you remember the Harrison Ford movie. I didn't kill my wife. 
but not the 1950 TV series. And then Mr. McDonald points out it wasn't a 1950s TV series. It ran from 63 to 67. I always do this. Whenever a TV series is in black and white, I think it was in the 50s, but it's not. An innocent victim of blind justice, falsely convicted for the murder of his wife, reprieved by fate when a train wreck freed him en route to the death house. Black and white TV prevailed far throughout the 60s. It's not only a relic of the 50s. Gilligan's Island started off in black and white and then went to full color on your Panasonic or Sylvania supersonic TV. That Gilligan's Island transition happened between uh, the first and second season. So in 65 through 67, Gilligan's Island was in color. And I'm sure that was the plot development that got all of the Adults watching primetime television as Gilligan and his cohort made radios out of coconuts. That's the thing that confused them. Wait, how could that be? How could they now be in color? And why'd they take all those clothes on the island? I know it is a classic joke, a classic hack stand-up joke. But the first guy who made the joke, it's a good observation. There were a lot of clothes on the island. So join us here each week, my friends. You're sure to get a smile. From seven stranded castaways here on Gilligan's Island. Okay, for the next portion of the Antwentig, I want to, I'm not going to say dwell, focus on uh, the Mastodon project in which not going to complain about it. I already did two shows on it, but I was on Mastodon and then I wasn't because, and if you listen back to the shows, because I linked to an article in the New York Times about transgender youth. That article, by the way, has been rebutted by WPATH, which is uh, the World Organization for Transgender Youth Doctors. So I will be following that. But the content of my post wasn't really important. What was, was that I was kicked off Mastodon. And the way I said it got a certain type of person very upset. On Twitter, I just trying to point to the fact that I was uh, within a group of journalists who no longer wanted me within that group because I posted a New York Times article and used the word activist to describe a self-identified advocate. I said, update, I've been suspended from Mastodon for the following exchange. Guess what was my offense? And then I posted the exchange. The offense was, you know, talking about advocates who do not like the results of that article. Fine. That's just by way of background. Now, you probably heard me talking about this on the show and talking about it now. Would it have heightened the listening experience? Would you have understood the issue better? Would it be more interesting? Had I said Mastodon a federated self-hosting social network service upon which a large number of independently run nodes known as instances occur was the locus for my being disinvited on one of the instances, aka nodes. I barely know what I'm talking about. Now, I, I do. I read up on it and I read into it and there are some I think subtleties, though not inaccuracies, of being banned from Mastodon. How it works is Mastodon, you don't care. I know, you don't care. But I'm going to get into it because people were very upset. 
Mastodon is not like Twitter in which there's one central authority. Now it's Elon Musk used to be the moderation board who says you're suspended from Twitter, right? It's more like you get on to Mastodon, someone invites you to a party. You don't have to know the owner of the house and whoever invited you to the party could invite you or insist that you leave the party. But from my perspective and to try to explain it to an audience, I said, I was suspended from Mastodon. I did not say I was banned from Mastodon, and I did not say, I certainly did not say I was suspended by Mastodon. I said I was suspended from Mastodon. I think that is the simplest, plain way of expressing what happened to me. And that is why people who saw the tweet, nope, Jeremy Akers, this is a lie, he said, of my assertion that I was suspended from Mastodon. You cannot be banned from Mastodon. I didn't say it was banned. I said it was suspended. Just like you can't be banned from email. Just like with email, if you break the rules on Gmail, they can kick you off, but you can get an email account somewhere else with different rules. Mastodon is exactly like that. It's totally not exactly like that, but I was on Mastodon. I was interacting with people on Mastodon. It was not that fruitful or enjoyable, but that's what I was doing. And then I was told, oh yeah, you can't do this again. I logged on. It says your account is suspended. And that was a Mastodon page telling me that. I explained to him, it's too much to explain federations and instances for an audience that just wants a straightforward account. I count you as that audience. I count the people I tweeted to. And this guy Akers wrote back, your timeline has a lot of Mastodon hate in it. It sure looks like a clear intent to mislead with the messaging. There were a not insignificant number of people who were quite upset that I said I was suspended when, in fact, there are other ways to get on Mastodon. Yes, just in the same way that if I were to say I was kicked out of college, you could come back and say, no, you were kicked out of a college. Unless, of course, the college you were kicked out of was, say, part of the University of California system, which might have reciprocity with one expulsion or suspension. But you could certainly be applied and then I'm out of character is on my tweet. Brian Harcourt writes in, this guy, this guy was in my Reddit page, unlike that Acres fellow on Twitter. His Twitter bio is, come to me on Mastodon. This guy, there are a lot of uh, guys who don the cape of Mastodon quite eagerly. But Brian Harcourt writes, I feel compelled to note that Mike's November 21st spiel are a cancel culture, may have suggested that Mastodon kicked Mike off the platform, but I think it's the specific Mastodon server that kicked Mike off. Yes, that is true. And then a guy named Genuine Effect or Effect Genuine, sounds like a good racehorse. Mike, this is specific to that instance of Mastodon. One instance of Mastodon isn't Mastodon. So you're ready with the jargon that I think is off-putting to someone who isn't up on the instances. But yeah, you're right. One instance of Mastodon isn't all of Mastodon. Getting kicked out of college isn't getting kicked out of all colleges. It is true. And if anyone listening was thinking I was permanently banned and can never go on Mastodon. Not only is that not the case, I hereby announce that I am going on Mastodon again, just not to that particular slice of Mastodon, that node, that server, or that instance. What we need is more synonyms for the special guy who invites you to the party. One guy invited me to the party, and that guy, my friend Adam, he wasn't the guy who kicked me out, but I was kicked out by the room of the party that I was invited to. Fine, you know, I say not fine, certainly not a big deal. Now another friend of mine, my friend Ben, has invited me to his room in the party. I will hang out there. I hope to have 35 followers. This is extremely unimportant to my life, but apparently it is quite important to a certain 
slice node instance of the listening or at least the tweeting public. And now onto nicer things, an invitation to the best listener of these last three weeks, this Antoine Tig. And for reasons that will become apparent, I cannot be the one who issues this particular citation. It is a little too perhaps self-serving and also makes me uh, question elements of my identity. You will see what I'm talking about when I invite on. You know her from such credits as the just COO of Peachfish Productions. Michelle Pesca is here to read the email that won the Lobstar of the Antoine Tig. Michelle? I'm very excited to present the Lobstar for the first time. Um, this is a prestigious award, as everybody knows. And I'm really excited to award this week's Lobstar to a new listener. His name is John Haskins. John Haskins writes, Hi, Mike. Dan Savage turned me on to your podcast. It is very good. May I suggest that you allow listeners... Let's go back to that one (laughs) sentence. (laughs) It it is very good. So that alone could earn someone a lobster, but that's not it. You're saying there's more than that. There is more. May I suggest that you allow listeners to pay an annual subscription to avoid ads and plugs for other podcasts? Hmm. Good, good thought, John. Dan and Isaac Saul do this, and I'm a subscriber to both of their podcasts. I bet a lot of your listeners would be willing to pay $40 to $50 a year. So from the good suggestion to the good suggestion, Mm -hmm. this is what earned him the lobster. It's not, although we are indeed working on a subscription model for our listeners. John, you're not the only person who has brought this to our attention. Many people have written in asking for this. Don't minimize John's contribution. I'm just saying, I just want to be clear that this again, is not what has earned him this week's Lobstar. What has earned him this week's Lobstar is his P.S. to his email, which says, P.S., you have the hottest profile photo of any podcaster I know. This was (laughs) mind-blowing. I mean, not because it's not true, because it definitely is true, but because one of Dan's listeners wrote this to us. He's a listener of Dan Savage, who in and of himself is extremely hot. And there's and has a, hot guests. If Dan Savage is known for nothing else, it's the hotness of the guests. Exactly. And so this says a lot. John's a new listener. We really value our new listeners. We value all of our listeners. But um, we also value our listeners who think Mike is hot. And this is an important value that we hear, have here at Peachfish Productions. But you, the listener, can understand why I couldn't take that comment and say, oh, I'm giving you an award for that. I couldn't do that. I personally couldn't do that. But you we, did agree to let me give the award for what it. What I did is I recused myself from the process out of out of uh, the issues of fairness. Sure. Michelle, please confer upon John the exalted status. John Haskins, you are the lobster of the Antwentig. That's it for today's show. Central to the mission of the gist is Corey Wara, the assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the gist's senior producer. He does admire the Dutch, but is rooting for the Yanks. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. To quote the Brazilians, who luckily the U.S. did not draw, um peru, peru, do peru, and thanks for listening. John Haskins, you are the lobster of the Antantwig. Antwentig. You made me say... <laughs>
You're the one who makes me say it like I that. never did that. You said that it's Antoine's take, and we have to get on. We have to get on the same page with pronunciation. No, I never I said it, it is. I never said it is this. Oh, I said, okay. You said once I've determined that yes. it was that, I have to I pronounce it not, consistently. I, you let you let the linguist determine the pronunciation, but then you wanted it to be consistent. I, I think it it's crazy that you think that I was telling you how a made up word is pronounced, and I was insisting. All words are made up, honey. Oh come on.